In one of the exciting Drisha developments of this past week, uh, Drisha became a partner in the new cycle of, of 929, 929 uh, the real cultural phenomenon in Israel of studying essentially a daily, daily parak of Tanakh, which has made one siyum on Tanakh and is now starting its second, well, started its second cycle in Israel, starting on Monday in the uh, English language world. Um, I know I'll be catching up within the first week so that everyone's on the same, uh, literally the same page around the world. Uh, the reason I mention that is because our, uh, our topic tonight has, uh, is going to be trying to deal with Tanakh as a foundation for Jewish thought. I think it's obvious that uh, Tanakh is foundational for Judaism, but putting a finger on how exactly that's true is much harder. Uh, obviously, if one puts a hard finger on it, uh, one becomes a Karite. Uh, if one puts a very, very light finger on it, uh, then there are other, other segments of Judaism. Uh, but we try to, we, broadly speaking, modern Jews, uh, try to walk some sort of complicated, fine line where Tanakh is foundational and significant, uh, and yet not exactly normative in the normal sense of, uh, of that word. One can't read Tanakh and learn what to do, or even learn what to think. Uh, although that's, um, that'll be our topic for, for this evening. But it is somehow foundational. Um, so I want to give an example of, of some of the complications of that, of why you can't, no one can really, uh, read Tanakh uh, and learn something concrete uh, without a lot of additional work. Uh, so I formulated it as follows. I think one of the challenges, um, and how I grapple with this challenge depends on the genre of the teaching or thinking or writing that I'm doing. Uh, but one of the challenges is distinguishing between intellectual history, in other words, the question of what did ancient Israelites believe in the 9th century BCE or something like that, uh, and something like constructive thought. In other words, Tanakh has a source for thought, in which case it doesn't just remain in the past, the reconstruction of what happened a long time ago, to the extent that we can do that, uh, but gives us some sort of guidance or framework for thinking about the present slash future. And that's a tough challenge. There's, the, there's no easy way to move from one to the other. Uh, Judaism, uh, not fundamentally different from, uh, from most religions and really all cultural institutions that are more than uh, a couple of centuries old, have to deal with the fact that there is a past that doesn't quite accord with the present and future. Uh, and that translation of what to do with the tradition, the heritage, and how to move that into our own reality uh, is, is a tough transition for which there is no guidebook. There's no answer key as to how to take this data and then yield a, a question. So here's an example. Uh, the Gemara at the end of Makot, uh, almost at the end of Makot, says that Moshe said, formulated a little differently, but Moshe said, Pokera vonavot al banim. Moshe said that God, in the uh, familiar English, visits the iniquity of the, of the parents on the children. Uh, that a parent sins, and the children will suffer for that. Says in the Torah a number of times. So it seems sort of uncontroversial that that is, uh, that that is in fact what Moshe said. Moshe presumably channeling uh, the inspiration that he had. Uh, but the Gemara says something much more interesting. The Gemara says that Moshe said that, but that this was cancelled, was nullified by Yechezkel. That Ezekiel, prophet in the early 6th century, cancelled this. It's no longer true. Uh, and again, it's uncontroversial that Yechezkel denies this. Yechezkel says a number of times that only the person who sins shall suffer for that sin. Not the father, not the parent, not the child. Only the person themselves. 
So there is a, a tension within the corpus of Tanakh, and the Gemara grapples with it by saying, well, that's earlier and that's later. Now, I think that's fascinating on a number of levels, um, but, uh, but I think most importantly for us right now, methodologically, that means that if I had set, gotten up here and said, listen, God visits the iniquities of the parents on the children. It says so. I mean, I can read you like chapter and verse over and over. I could just, I, I'm not doing any interpretation here. I'm just saying what it says in the text. You could still say to me, that's not normative Jewish thought. Right? Is that, that's been canceled. Now, of course, it's not simple how one cancels something that's in the Torah. I'm, that's uh, not, not what I'm going to worry about right now. I think from an intellectual history perspective, we might say, well, that makes sense. You know, there was an earlier time in Israelite history where the nuclear family uh, was so obviously the relevant unit of moral culpability that it made sense to, quote-unquote, visit the iniquity of the parents on the children. But over the slow process of urbanization that we see in the 8th, 7th centuries, people start moving to cities, and then, more importantly, the rupture, the trauma of the exile of, of Hurban Bayer Rishon and the Babylonian exile, where we know that there are parents in one country and children 500 miles away, it no longer makes sense to think of families as units. And so maybe there's a rising sense that it's immoral for one person to suffer for the sins of someone who they haven't seen in many years. It no longer makes intuitive sense. And here's the key thing then uh, in thinking about this ethically. And Tanakh says, mandates, lays down, reflects that God's practices of justice change to accord with the changing social realities which in turn affect how we think about morality. In other words, if that's sort of blatantly immoral, from anyone's perspective, in the that time of the Babylonian exile, for a parent to live in Jerusalem, but the child to have been exiled to Babylon, and the parent is doing whatever they're doing in, uh, in Jerusalem, and everyone thinks, well, that's, it's immoral to visit the iniquity of the parents on a child 500 miles away who's been separated for the last 15 years, then what the Gemara seems to be saying that Yechezkel says is, then he'll stop. Then God won't do that anymore. If it's not fair, then God will change his ways to accord with what's fair in the realities. This all seems quite fascinating, but this is really an example of the complexity of this. Because, of course, again, scripture and verse say all sorts of different things. Right? That's the problem. That's the, the beginning of the problem here. What the Gemara is grappling with is, well, we have different views on this issue in Chumash, in Sefer Shmot, at Har Sinai itself. But then we have a different view in Yechezkel, centuries later. And here's the key point. We need to read this, in this example at least, we need to read this canonically. In other words, what Chazal do, what the Gemara does, is say, well, we need to read Tanakh as a whole in order to say something certain about how God acts. Because in this case, according to the Gemara, that earlier texts, all those earlier texts, are just the original, but they're no longer true. They've been cancelled. They've been nullified uh, by a later prophet. And therefore, if you ask contemporaneously, do children, religiously, ought children to suffer for their parents' sins? Uh, the answer from a canonical perspective is no. You say, but it says so over and over in the Torah. I say, well, that, that was an earlier version of God's justice. But God's justice may actually change with the times. Now, what authority, who has what authority to claim that God's justice has changed, again, is is beyond our, our uh, topic for, for this evening. Uh, but I want to just make the point that this question of the nuclear family and when a child can suffer for what their parents do is literally in the news every day today. 
right? I mean, if a parent sneaks across the border illegally, should the child be incarcerated? So, you know, there's, a, there's an uproar about it, about it, but let me point out that if a mother sells drugs and goes to prison, and the child's now going to grow up without a mother, the child's suffering. That we accept with sanguinity. I mean, that's, that's okay. I mean, that's, that's reality of, uh, of a person going to prison. It's not, and we haven't worked this out till today. When can one person suffer for the sins of another? We understand that there is, there is a collateral damage in any sort of punishment that is, uh, that is meted out. And when it comes to nuclear families, it's really hard to avoid profound collateral damage. Intergenerational, horizontal, and so on. This is not a simple issue. And the fact that, that Tanakh has different views on it, and that Chazal tried to make sense of it all, is not at all surprising. Changing realities are obviously a part of it, but it's a fundamental moral problem because justice is never going to be laser-focused and therefore perfect. Other people will suffer for any punishment we give someone, and that's something that Chazal and, and Tanakh earlier have to be grappling with. So these kinds of questions, so how would Tanakh, how would, how would biblical thinkers think about current events and the questions of uh, children's being, children being incarcerated for what their parents did, it's not a simple question, but we can begin to approach it if we take these questions canonically. We start to say, you know, well, there, there are different views in the Bible, and maybe there's a basic principle being laid out. Maybe there are some core ideas being laid out, which may change in different centuries because of different realities and so on and so forth, but maybe we can extract something that is ex- applicable to even our own times. I'm not sure that it's that, even that simple, uh, but that would have to be the beginning of such work. And the point, again, is that this work is not simple. Uh, it's really hard to figure out well, how to use Tanakh as a source of biblical thought. So our, <clears throat> our topic for this evening is the, is the, the quote, disappearance of God. Uh, formulated as such, uh, that's a description. I, I mean that as a literary description. And that would be the first part of what we, we do this evening. Uh, but then we'll try, try to turn to the question of of loose normativity, or at least how to take that description and turn it into a constructive uh, set of, of questions. Uh, I'm not going to offer anything in my own voice, because uh, it's worth a little and I don't have all that much to say, uh, but we will turn to some texts from rabbinic literature that pick up on the biblical themes and try to respond to them in, in different ways. Now, there are questions of methodology just in reading. Uh, does a reading of Again, the theology of Yechezkel or Yirmiyahu, if I, if I describe what Yechezkel or Yirmiyahu say, is that worth more or less than what Shemot or Devarim say? So our intuition might be that Chumash is most important. But in the example we just looked at that we opened with, it turns out to be the, the opposite. So accounting for various voices within Tanakh is, um, is really the key point here. Um, so if we read, so turning to the question of, of the disappearance of God, if we read Bereshit Parakalath, God is so present that he's almost literally the only character. And that's true for much of Bereshit, even when there are other human characters on the, on the stage. Uh, I think it's fair to say that God is actually the central character in Sefer Bereshit, certainly for the first two-thirds of the book. Uh, he's talking to everyone, he's controlling things, he's uh, telling people what to do, rewarding them, punishing them, talking all the time. Uh, he's not fulfilling what he said, but that's a different problem that will come to, uh, come to you soon. Uh, that changes a bit when we get to, to Joseph, when we get to Yosef. I mean, he goes down to Egypt. He never meets God in Egypt. And that seems important. Um, but that's, even though Rashid is 50 chapters, so it seems like a sizable chunk, of course, 
even looking at Breshit is only a small part of looking at Tanakh as a whole. And when we look at Tanakh as a whole, we find patterns that are, I think, stunning and, and really quite fascinating. And this is, uh, there's a book by uh, Richard Elliott Friedman called The Disappearance of God, which is a, uh, a fascinating, really insightful book. Uh, it goes in some surprising directions uh, in the second half of the book, where he connects the biblical theology to uh, readings of Nietzsche and Dostoevsky. Um, but the first third of the book uh, is, is, the, uh, is where I first learned the facts that we're about to, uh, about to review. Um, reading, and here's the key thing, you have it on the source sheet. Reading from beginning to end, according to the Jewish order. And that's all important to say, because first of all, most people don't read Tanakh beginning to end. Um, for all sorts of reasons. Uh, it's not that big, but it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an anthology. I think it's important to say that none of the authors of the books of Tanakh ever thought you would read it beginning to end, right? except maybe the very, very last couple. Uh, the author of Shemuel couldn't possibly have known what was going to come uh, in the following books. So reading beginning to end is not an obviously valuable thing to do. One might argue that this is an anthology. It's like reading the Norton Anthology of English Literature beginning to end. Like, <laughs> Who cares if you had to detect a pattern there? At most, you've found something of what the editors were thinking, but that's not interesting in terms of the, uh, the text themselves. Um, but, but it may well be that for Jewish thought, reading beginning to end is actually more important than what any particular book says. Um, so let's put that on paper. Reading beginning to end, according to the Jewish order, because of course, if you've opened a, a Christian, certainly a Catholic Bible, uh, you know that the order is different. <coughs> Um, and even some of the books that we'll mention are in different places, but all the historical books are together. In other words, things like Ruth and Ezra and Nehemiah and Daniel are with the historical books that we call Nevi'im Rishonim, the early prophets, uh, the former prophets. Uh, all the prophets are together. That means that Daniel is together with Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Uh, and that's putting aside the texts that exist in the Catholic Bible that don't exist in the, in the Jewish Bible. So reading beginning to end according to the Jewish order. Um, and... I suppose for the sake of intellectual honesty, I should say, I should have a footnote or something that says, it's true there are different Jewish orders also. Um, as you probably know, the Aleppo Codex, which is the most, single most reliable medieval text of Tanakh that we have, uh, has Direi Amim first in Ketuvim. Uh, and there are other quirks of that sort in some of the, uh, some of the various traditions and manuscripts. But luckily for us, that's not going to affect our big point. So end the footnote and back to main text. Um, so reading beginning to end, according to the Jewish order, Tanakh describes the gradual disappearance of God from the world, from history, and from the text. And that's progressive. It's not that he disappears on page 632. Um, it's that there are things that he does regularly early on that he stops doing, one by one by one, until by the time we get to the end, we're really in a different world theologically than we were at the beginning. Um, so this is, uh, these are some of the examples. The last person to whom he is said to reveal himself, Nigla, is Shmuel. Uh, so that's, I said the 11th century. The date actually doesn't matter, and I'll, I'll emphasize that. But, um, so say for Shmuel, you know where that is. Uh, the last person to whom God is said to appear, Nirah, uh, is Shlomo. So uh, Malachim Aleph, towards the beginning. Uh, the last public miracle, and it's the last time that we ever in Tanakh hear of God doing something in the eyes of the masses, is the fire for Eliyahu and Avi on Har Carmel, which is the story you, you remember. And, I'll come back to this in a second, that's immediately followed in the very next chapter with Eliyahu running to 
Har Horev, to the mountain of God, and God refusing to appear to him. So I want to come back to that in a second, but that seems important. So it's the last miracle, and then there's a refusal to appear. The last personal miracle, and this is the last time that God does anything for a, like a favor for a friend, uh, is for Chizkiyahu. In the later 8th century, we hear about that in Sefer Ishayahu. So this is, this is already interesting. I mean, you get to Ketuvim, God is not Nira, God is not Nigla. Um, so this is a, we have to note the absences. Of course, you know, we might be so attuned to what we hear in Breshit and Shemot that this is reverberating in our heads throughout Tanakh, but we have to notice at some point that those echoes have gone silent. He's, he's just not doing it anymore. He's not there. He's not, he's not involved in the same way. Now, Yosef, as we said, is already an example, but of course Yosef is followed by Moshe. Uh, so Yosef and Moshe are opposites in all sorts of ways, literarily. Um, I don't think we have to belabor, but Yosef, of course, the one who was born in Canaan and winds up in the Egyptian palace. Moshe, the one who was born or was raised in the Egyptian palace and leads the people out to Canaan. Uh, Yosef, the one who starts slavery in Egypt, as we're told really explicitly at the end of, of Breshit. Uh, Moshe, the one who tries to take Israel out of slavery. Uh, all sorts of ways in which Yosef and Moshe are foils for each other. Um, and of course, in our, in our, in our sense as well, Yosef, if, if revelation is denied to him, he's a dreamer, but God never appears to him. God never speaks to him. Even, uh, even when he interprets dreams, he says God is helping him, uh, but we never hear that God is telling him anything. Uh, and of course... A cynic may look at what Yosef's doing and not see God involved, may say that this guy's a really talented dream interpreter, as the Egyptians and the Babylonians uh, had, who we presumably wouldn't uh, accord any sort of uh, respect as, as divinely inspired. Um, but Yosef is, is denied revelation. Moshe, of course, is certainly the height of revelation. Uh, so in that sense, they're, they're opposites as well. But Yosef, against, he's an aberration. He's doing it diaspora, exile, Egypt, whatever's going on there, Something aberrant happened in the last third of Sefer Breshi. But then we go back to Moshe. You know, I, I think we could probably refine this a bit, but in the level of revelation, Moshe reminds us a lot of Abraham, reminds us a lot of the early... God's talking to him, they're having conversations, Moshe talks to God, he sees, you know, he wants to see God's body part. There's all sorts of very intimate revelation um, that reminds us of the beginning of Chumash, and I think it would be fair to say that at that point nothing has really changed in terms of God's involvement with humanity from the beginning of the, of the Torah. But, but by the time we get to the end of Nevi'im Rishonim, by the time we get to the stories of, of uh, after Shlomo, of Eliyahu and Yishayahu and Cheskiyahu, uh, God's really not appearing, appearing to anyone at all. And that's not an aberration anymore, because he never comes back. And that's, that's the, the important point. The case of Eliyahu, I think, of, of Elijah may be particularly interesting, uh, because canonically, it's obvious that Eliyahu is trying to replicate something like the revelation at Sinai, uh, which he knows of, uh, we, we certainly know, uh, of from, from Moshe. Uh, he flees in Malachim uh, Aleph 19.8. You don't have this on the source sheet. But, um, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. He gets to Har Elohim Chorev. So this is, of course, echoing in our ears. Like We know exactly what to do, and we know what to expect then, right? So if someone gets to Har Chorev, fasting 40 days and 40 nights, we know what to expect. God's going to come down. There's going to be thunder. There's going to be lightning. There's going to be rash. There's going to be all sorts of, uh, of, uh, of awe-inspiring natural phenomena. And then there's going to be some sort of massive revelation. And Eliyahu's waiting for that. And instead, 
God says to him, Malachah Eliyahu, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm, I'm a zealot, right? Everyone else is bad. I'm the only one left good, right? Now, again, that's, that's like Moshe, right? God said to Moses, you're the only one left good. So what was God's conclusion from that? Destroy them, you'll be the only one. Elijah's like, I'm the only one, right? We're doing this again. I'm here. No one else is good. And God says, get out of here. Like, just go back and work with the people. Like, I'm not doing that again. And here, here's Rosh, I'm not there. Here's light, thunder and lightning, I'm not there. You know where I am? I'm in a cold Ramadaka. Exactly. So this is like the anti-theophany, the anti-revelation. This is almost a repudiation of that old type of revelation. You know, back in the days of Sefer Shmo, back in the days of the Exodus, God used to reveal himself in all sorts of really cool ways. And Elijah's like, let's do it again, God. And God's like, no, no, no. That was, that was a long time ago. I don't play those games anymore. I did that Harakamel thing, last chapter, right? Last chapter, I sent you down fire from heaven. But don't expect that kind of a relationship. Don't expect that kind of revelation anymore. That's just not the world that we live in anymore. So the shift, the shift away from overt revelations of God is, is really well underway by the time we get you know, deep into Nebim Rishonim and deep into the stories of Bayat Rishon. But remember, this is not intellectual history um, and it's, not, it's certainly not a, a history of God in the world. Um, and so books in Ketuvim, books in the last part of Tanakh, uh, which, and again, that's the Jewish division, not the Christian, not the Catholic division, uh, they come after Chumash and Nebim no matter when they're set, no matter when they're written. So, let's talk about the book of Ruth soon. I don't care right now when it was written. And I don't care that it starts, that this was happened in the days of the Shoftim. It's in Ketuvim, so we're reading it at the end. Uh, most of the books that we'll deal with are uh, both chronologically and uh, canonically late. But, uh, but I think it's important to say, we're reading literarily, and so I'm not trying to say that God actually stopped appearing in the 8th century. I have no idea what God was doing in the 8th century. Uh, I think it's obvious that all we have is literary representations of whatever... God was doing. I, I, it's not, I'm not trying to piece together a history of God. Uh, I'm trying to piece together the way Tanakh describes God, and for that, the canonical order is the important one. So, to them, for the most part, oh, even this is a little bit overgeneralized, but for the most part, uh, doesn't claim that God's uninvolved. For the most part, God is involved in human affairs, but it's much more complicated than in the days of Abraham and Moses. Uh, so let's start with uh, Ezra, for example. Do you have first, uh, first there? Uh, Ezra, we get the beginning of the book of Ezra. So the, book in the beginning of the book of Ezra is not about Ezra. Uh, it's about Cyrus. And this is, so we know exactly when this is. This is the year 539 BCE. I don't care for our purposes, but it's worth setting the stage. 539 BCE, the Babylonian Empire has just crumbled and the Persians have taken over. And Cyrus has walked into Babylon bloodlessly taking over a massive empire, uh, which, not under him, but very soon, in a number of decades, will stretch, as Esther tells us, uh, from Pakistan to Sudan. So, try to think about the challenges. As you know, it's hard to govern, let's say, Afghanistan. Try to govern Pakistan to Sudan. That's Cyrus's... Well, Cyrus didn't have Egypt yet, but uh, that's Cyrus's challenge. The Persians have to figure out how to govern this thing. So, the primary platform of foreign policy that they use is everyone go do whatever they want. Just be good subjects in an economic sense. You'll pay tribute, 
you, you know, we're going to send the governor, there'll be roads, there'll be taxes. You cooperate. I'm not going to try to govern the tribal territories of Afghanistan. I, I'm fine here. And we'll have some Persian officials there. But everyone do whatever they want, religiously, politically, economically, as long as you play ball in the big Persian economic empire. So first, first thing, literally first thing, Cyrus says, everyone go home. The Babylonians had this exile policy, which had some advantages politically, had a lot of disadvantages. There's a massive economic strain on the empire. So everyone go home. Everyone, whoever wants to go back, go back. So we actually have a copy of the famous Cyrus Cylinder, which is in the British Museum. Uh, we have his, uh, his declaration uh, to the Babylonians saying, we're going to rebuild the temple of Marduk. Um, you know, everyone has permission to worship wherever they want. I'm not, involved, I'm not interested in, in converting any, anyone to... Uh, he was probably not yet Zoroastrian, but whatever, whatever his religion was... Um, uh, so we have that. It was actually in New York a few years ago for the Mets ex- exhibit. Um, but uh, so that one, that one exists. Iran's always trying to borrow it. Actually, like sort of funny. Uh, as the as the beacon of uh, to celebrate their 2,500 years of the uh, as a status of beacon of liberty throughout the world. Um, it's not actually from Iran, just for the record. It's from it's from Babylon, which is in Iraq. But uh, but Cyrus, of course, is is quote unquote Iranian. Anyway, um, so we have we have. Literally, we have a copy of his declaration to the Babylonians, and the book of Ezra quotes his declaration to the Jews. But here's the key point. It's introduced not as Cyrus had an interesting foreign policy. It's introduced as, God moved the heart, or awakened the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. So theologically, this is the, this is the key point. Right? Cyrus allowed the temple to be rebuilt, so I put this, because of my, you know, the uh, pitfalls of my profession, I put it in political and economic terms. Uh, St. Ezra says, this is religious. And it's not Cyrus's religion, it's God. The God of Israel said to Cyrus, here, go do this. Right? So God is involved. But God is involved in a mediated way. Right? God is involved in allowing the Jews to go back, but unlike in the days of Moshe and Abraham, God is not showing up and saying, here, go back now. Uh, God is awakening the spirit of Cyrus, and Cyrus is speaking out loud. Of course, an approach like that doesn't allow, there's, there's, it's really hard to figure out how it would allow for overt miracles. Right? Cyrus can't do anything miraculous. So, almost by definition, in a theology like this, which has its roots back in, let's say, Yeshayahu and some of the other Nebiim, where God works through human actors, there's really no room for the miraculous in the world anymore. Things might work out well. Cyrus might allow the Jews to go back. But Cyrus can't bring thunder and lightning storms to defeat the enemies just at the right time or throw rocks down from heaven or have the stars uh, depart their courses and do something that really... That's not possible for Cyrus. If God's going to work in a mediated way, that means that God has actually limited his options. All he can do is work through political systems. Now, in the book of Daniel, there are miracles. These are also mediated, though. They're mediated through angels. Uh, and the story is, let's say, of the, uh, the three friends of Daniel who are saved from the burning, uh, from the fiery furnace, or Daniel himself, who's in the lion's den. An angel came and held the lion's mouth shut. An angel came and did something with the fire. I actually don't understand what he did. <laughs> doesn't matter. Um, but uh, but so, so here there are miracles. The book of Daniel does have miracles, but even the miracles are mediated. God's no longer showing up even in the mind of the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is the most miraculous supernatural book in all of Tuvim. 
And even here, God is not doing the same thing that he used to do. Here there's angels intervening uh, in, between, uh, in between God and human affairs. And it's, uh, you know, interesting that the only named angels that we get in Tanakh are in Sefer Daniel. It's the only book that actually has names for angels uh, is in Daniel. Um, this, the angels seem to rise as God recedes. So God's, God's taken a step, a fairly large step backwards, uh, so according to Daniel, he hasn't abandoned the world, he sent emissaries, and they're taking care of some of his work. Um, I think, well, Esther is, is maybe the most radical, I'm not going to belabor this, because I've spent too much time belaboring it, but um, uh, Esther, of course, doesn't mention God at all, or anything miraculous, or anything overtly divine. Uh, now, some readers take this to be essentially akin to the theology of Ezra. In other words, that's fine, so God is working through Achashverosh or Mordechai and Esther. Uh, when it says Hamelech, that means God. All sorts of mediated versions, which is which is fine. That's one possibility. Uh, others think that the book is simply unwilling to assert God's involvement at all, because I think you could frame this as a question: If God is always mediated through humans, how do I ever know that it's God anyway? Maybe Cyrus is just a really good person or a really shrewd person. And same with anyone else who you could say happens to be doing God's will. I don't know it's God's will. It may or may not accord with God's will, but I really have no evidence that God's behind this by definition, because the whole point is that it's mediated. So the book of Esther, I actually take to be essentially a question mark about this. Things worked out really well. Achashverosh was there, Esther was there, Mordecai did the right... All these things worked out really well. Is it God? It, it could be, but it's really hard for me to assert that. In the absence of prophecy, in the absence of an overt revelation from God, it's hard to end the book with a statement, and so we see how God saved the Jewish people. Because it may be God, but it may just be humans. And as long as God is always going to, according to the terms of Ezra, let's say, work through humans, it's actually impossible to puzzle that out. There's just no way of knowing whether God's behind any human or not. And of course, we don't trust people when they say God's behind them, for all sorts of good reasons. So there's literally, there's just no way of of figuring that out. I think maybe even more interesting is is the book of of Ruth. Um, because here, God's mentioned all the time. People are always talking about him. I, I put just a sampling of uh, Psukim here on the sheet at the top of the next page. Um, but people are constantly evoking him, hoping that he does things. God should bless you. God did this. God's, not taking, God's taking care of you. God should take care of you. Uh, God hasn't stopped showing kindness. All sorts of different things. Uh, but he's the subject of exactly, grammatical subject, of exactly one verb in the entire book. The one thing that he does, and is the one action that is attributed to him, is uh, Ruth's pregnancy. Vayitain Hashem la hirayom. And that's explicitly after Vayavoy leha, and as Boaz slept with Ruth. So, the truth is, God, God didn't need to do all that much here. We're, it's not even like a puzzle as to like how she got pregnant. Oh, there's divine intervention. <laughs> Boaz slept with his wife Ruth. God, I would venture even a translation, God allowed her to become pregnant. In other words, he didn't block nature from taking its course, and she became pregnant. This is really, I think, fascinating, because again, people are talking about God all the time here, uh, but, but all he really does is not get in, get in the way of people doing good things. Boaz is a really remarkable human being. Uh, Ruth is an re- absolutely remarkable human being. Their actions lead to the happy ending of the story, whatever that is exactly. Uh, God's role is essentially not messing that up. 
but people are constantly talking about him. I think that's really important because that, that, that's potentially a model for Chazal uh, that we'll see in a few minutes. Um, okay, so up till now has been sort of a description. Like, this is how I see the, the state of affairs in Tanakh. Again, God essentially withdraws from human affairs. He, he simply stops being involved, but the later books grapple with this in different ways. He's not involved at all, or at least we can't see any trace of him, or he's involved but always mediated through humans, or he's taking a step backwards but sending angels, or we keep talking about him and things are going well enough that we're pretty sure that he's doing things, but again, no one's claiming that he's fighting from the heavens anymore. No one's claiming that the sun is stopping in the sky. There's nothing of that sort uh, anywhere in these stories. So now I want to I switch gears and, uh, and look at uh, a few passages from Chazal. Because Chazal, of course, inherit this, right? When I said before that the biblical authors, you know, the author of the book of Ruth, didn't know that, he would be, that his book would be in Ketuvim, and that it would follow after something and lead into something else, but Chazal, of course, inherit that. That's the Tanakh that they know. So when they look at Tanakh, it's actually a really fascinating question. How would they read it? People always talk about, and this is, you know, in the scholarly literature for decades, people talked about how Midrash is atomic and atomistic. And it is that they take things out of context and just focus on a couple of words or a phrase without, without uh, paying attention to the broader context. But it's obvious that that's often not true. That even when they say surprising things, they actually are focusing on a broader context. Just they're talking in a language that's a little different than ours, so you sort of have to decode uh, what they're doing. But the important thing for us is that Chazal certainly don't live in a world of miracles. Uh, they live in our worlds. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally sure what kind of world the author of uh, Shemuel lived in, uh, but Chazal is clearly living in our world. They don't expect God to show up on a mountaintop at, at some point. They hope that he will. They live in, in expectation that something like that will again happen. Uh, but they don't live in a world where this is a reality that they've ever encountered or expect to encounter. They don't expect to turn the corner and meet an angel on the, uh, on the street corner holding a sword, as Yoshua does. We have stories of Eliyahu and Avi and things of that sort. Uh, even that, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's worth more thought about the difference between, let's say, meeting Eliyahu and Avi and meeting an angel, or hearing a batkol and encountering Nebuah. These things are interesting. It's clearly a step removed from biblical realities, but... Uh, but certainly, I think a, a, a deeper uh, discussion about this would probably nuance that a bit. But here's the thing. Let's say they said, you know, as, as you hear people say sometimes, well, God is hidden in his face. Hester panim. The rabbis think, and I think this is absolutely correct, Hester panim is not a morally neutral description. If one hides one's face while evil is happening in front of you, then you're culpable. And if God hides his face, and allows evil to run rampant in the world, that's not a morally neutral description. Hester Panim, we've solved all the problems. That's a very big theological problem. How can God have be Mastir Panav and just allow bad things to happen? And sometimes Chazal give voice to this. An example that's not on your sheet, uh, Midrash in the Mechilta on Shirat Hayam, uh, glosses, Mi'chamolcha uh, Ba'elim Hashem, says, Mi kamocha ba'ilmim Hashem. Who is like you among the mute ones? Mute ones, O oh Lord. Mi kamocha ro'eb elbon banecha v'shotek. Who like you sees the disgrace of your children and stays silent? In other words, who like you is not, not superlative. It is, how can anyone see the disgrace of their children and stay silent? And yet God, that's what you do all the time. 
Look at the world that you've abandoned to the, to the forces of evil. As you say, that type of protest is found in Tanakh also. Um, Tehillim, which I didn't mention for all sorts of reasons, um, uh, but Tehillim Memdal, Psalm 44, I think is one of the more arresting examples of this. It's a long mizmor, and you don't have it in front of you, um, but the overall, the overall uh, tenor of the mizmor is as follows. God, you're great. We've heard all the wonderful things that you've done. We have been faithful to you forever. You have abandoned us. We still praise you all the time. But you've abandoned us. You disgrace us. You don't fight for us anymore. Right? And this is back in Tehillim. This is not after the Roman conquest. I skipped a few psukim. We are killed for you all every day. God, wake up. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't abandon us forever. How could you hide your face? And, and ignore or forget our suffering and oppression. That's the phrase Esther Panim. Esther Panim is not... It's not something you can just say, wave your hand, and, and you've explained everything. On the contrary, that's a massive problem in the world. Hester Panim? We're suffering because of Hester Panim. The Midrash that you, have, that you do have in front of you. You also take the blame in the we never take it. On the contrary. The Memdala the Sama says, We have not sinned. God, if we did, you would know about it. You know, you know Talumot Kolev. We have not done anything. It's, it's actually the most emphatic blaming of God that I know of in Tanakh. It's like, we're, we're blameless. Or at least, you know, given the scale of what's happened, we're blameless. Um, but, uh, but you, God, you've fallen down on the job. This, this Pasuk, Ura Lama Tishana, wake up. It's shocking. Chazal actually quoted a number of times, but always to backtrack from it. Always to say, does God really sleep? No, no, it's just that he pretends that he's sleeping sometimes. And again, that doesn't get him off the hook. If he's pretending that he's sleeping, and they're letting evil run rampant, that's not okay either. Maybe that's even worse. So if you were really sleeping, you know, we get tired. But uh, he's pretending you're sleeping? Like, that's, that's totally not okay. Rabbi Mayer... Ray Mayer develops this in a, in a chilling statement, in a statement that is so chilling that it chills his colleagues. Um, this you have in, it's in Vayikra Rabbah and in Breshi Rabbah, and this you have in the middle of the second page. God hides his eyes, who can see his face, who can see him? Darash Rabbi Meir. He remains silent in his world. Hides his face in his world. Kidayana there, like a judge. And remember, a judge not like an American system. A judge in a, in a more activist, like a European system. Spanish, Italian. Where the judge is supposed to go out and like, find out what the truth is. Kidayana there. He's pulled the shades closed. He's no longer looking out the window. He doesn't know what's happening outside. As his colleagues are like, Mayor, that, that's too much. Right? It didn't heal him, Memdalid. We leave it there. But for you to get up and say, God, you're like a judge who has pulled the curtains closed. You're not looking at the world anymore. Let's not give voice to this. 
And that, I think, is, is an important line for a number of reasons. First of all, it just confirms that Rabbi Meir and his colleagues live in a, a world that we would be familiar with. Because they look at a world and they say, God doesn't seem to be doing anything. They don't live in a delusional world where they see God around every corner. They understand that God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Their concern is not that Rabbi Meir is wrong, that God is actually doing all that's right. Their concern is, we don't say this out loud. We don't, we don't talk about this out loud. It's such a deep problem that maybe we just don't talk about it. And here I think, I think uh, something like post-Holocaust theology may be uh, a way of understanding the, 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 uh, the way of thinking. Rabbi Meir and his colleagues lived through Bar Kokhba two, three generations after Horban Abayit. They lived through a, a massive catastrophe. I don't want to compare catastrophes. It's a massive catastrophe. And he says, look, I don't know where God is. That Beit HaMidash was destroyed in the days of my great-grandfather. We tried to fight Rabbi Meir as a student of Rabbi Akiva. That was an even bigger catastrophe. Whatever the, the considerations were in starting that fight, it wound up really, really bad. Rabbi Meir says, look, God, God's obviously not involved here. He's pulled the shades closed. He's not helping us anymore. And they say, let's not talk. I'm sure you, I'm sure you all know people who lived through or experienced even one step removed the Holocaust, who say, we don't talk about it. Right? Other people respond differently. But some people say, we just, it's too deep an issue to even broach. And I think the sense is, we all know that there aren't that many good options. Once you raise the question, there aren't that many places that it can go that we'd be happy going. And so sometimes intellectual honesty demands that we go there anyway. And Ray Mayer says, all right, if that's where we have to go, that's where we have to go. Let's just call a spade a spade. God has fallen down on the job. God is not doing what he's supposed to do. And his colleagues say, it's too much. It's too raw. It's too much. We can't go there. A much more mainstream view, and by mainstream I mean literarily mainstream, because I suspect that Mayer's colleagues all harbor thoughts that agreed with him also. That's why it's such a raw issue. But literarily mainstream, what we often find in Chazal is a way, uh, ways of trying to not go there. So this, well, this is the last text that we'll look at. Uh, I think it's, it's an amazingly subtle text, which I don't know uh, whether you'll find it theologically compelling or not. I think it's literarily fascinating, and at least theologically uh, raises some, uh, some other possibilities. So the, the text is the, almost the very end of Mishnah Brachot. So the end of the last paragraph of Brachot, they instituted, they, the earlier rabbis, instituted that a person should greet his or her fellow with the name of God. What's the precedent for that? Well, they quote three psukim, exactly. The first one is, the obvious one, Shneemar, Vine Boaz Bami Beit Lechem, Vayom Alekotrim Hashem Imachem, Vayom Rulo Hashem. Oh, we have a precedent for this. Boaz comes from Bethlehem. He says to the harvesters, May the Lord be with you. So he invokes God in greeting his, his workers. And they say to him, May the Lord bless you. So that's our precedent. And the Mishnah continues. Ve'omer, Ve'erai elav malach Hashem, Ve'omre elav, Hashem imcha gibor That's not the only precedent, though. There's another precedent from the book of Shoftim, from Judges. It says, we'll come back to this context in a second. Um, the Mishnah actually doesn't have the first half there. May God be with you, or, or God is with you, uh, mighty warrior, Gibor Chayim, which is also a term used for Boaz, 
but uh, I'm not sure that that's relevant right now. Ve'omer, last pasuk quoted, ve'al tavuz kizaknai mecha. Pasuk from Mishlei that seems to have nothing to do with anything. So let's look again at the first two, and then I think we have a sense of where the third one's going to go. So the first two, of course, so Boaz is our precedent. But of course, Boaz is a, a complicated precedent, because as we've seen, yes, Boaz keeps talking about God, and the Kotrim talk about God, and Naomi talks about God, and the women talk about God, and Ruth talks, everyone talks about God, but God's not actually doing anything there. So invoking Boaz as a precedent is interesting. What they're actually doing is saying, we talk about God even when he's not acting. Right? And again, this is, a, I think, one example, there are literally thousands, but I think one example of where Chazal are absolutely attuned to the broader context. They're not taking this line out. Of, they're not just saying, I found the pasuk somewhere, it doesn't matter where, where God is invoked in greeting someone. They're saying Boaz does it. That's really important. Because Boaz does it in, even in the absence of God's overt involvement. The second pasuk is even more interesting. Uh, you have just the English on the bottom of the, of the page. I'm just out of space. <laughs> and I didn't want to waste more paper. Um, say the, the, uh, the, the English there. But the story of Gidon, where Gidon is, as you recall, in his, uh, in his parents' estate, and, and Malach shows up and says, uh, God is with you. Right? And Gidon doesn't let that go. Gidon responds. Gidon says, is that true? What do you mean, Hashem Imchagi Borchayel? Is that a wish? Is that a, like, what are you doing exactly? What are you saying? Hebrew is annoying. There are no verbs, right? You mean is, was, will be, ought to be, maybe. Like, what, what are you saying here? So he says, he, say, he challenges, pardon me, my Lord, biaduni, biyesh Hashem Imanu? Is God really with us? I don't see him. You know why I don't see him? Even though there's an angel standing in front of me? Because we're oppressed. What's happen- if God's with us, why does this all happen to us? Where are all the wonders that he, that he used to do that our ancestors told us about when they said that Hashem brought us out of Egypt? Now God's abandoned us and given us to the hands of Midian. What do you mean God's with me? In what sense is God with me? I live in an oppressed society where Midian's in charge. What do you mean God's with me? I know he used to be. I've heard stories about the Exodus. I've heard all these cool things from my ancestors. I don't see any evidence of God being with me. What do you mean, Hashem Imcha Gibor So that, that is an astounding pasuk to quote in this Mishnah. When Chazal say, talk about God, as the angel says, Hashem Imcha Gibor they know what the response to that is going to be. If I greet you on the street and say, Hashem Imcha Gibor you always say, really? Is that true? Look at the world around us. Do you see God around you? And that, again, Chazal are absolutely attuned to the context here. Uh, they didn't just pick a, a phrase that works, ignoring the next pasuk. They knew what they were doing. In fact, they're begging the question. I know I know they're begging the question because the next line answers it. They quote Mishlei to say, Al-Tavuz mecha. Now, shocking as it may be, there's only one possible reference of who your mother could be in this Mishnah. Right? Your mother can only be God. Which means that this is a stunning thing to say about God. What's the dynamic when, when Mishlei says, Al tavuz Look, one's parent nurtured, not just gave life at the first moment, but nurtured for years, decades, everything is owed to, the, to that parent. But there comes a stage, which I have not yet reached, where the parents <laughs> cease to be, uh, to be helpful. I say this because my parents here. 
Um, it's true, but it's also <laughs> important to say. Um, but there is a point where I, I hear that children may be tempted, lavuz, to say, you know what, you know, for a long time, you gave to me, right? But I never, I never agreed to give back to you. That wasn't the deal. I was happy to take. But now, now you're old. Now, not only are you not giving to me, you're a burden on me. You expect me to support you. You expect me to do all... Ah, uh, that's not what I was in here for, right? Thanks for the head start on life, and uh, lavuz. And Mishlei says, of course, and this is common sense about humans. I, I think every society has more or less uh, agreed with this sentiment. Al tavuz, right? No, no, that, that's not morally, ethically okay. But of course, what the Mishnah does has made this theologically a really shocking thing to say. That's true also. The nimshal is, that's our relationship with God. There was a time where God gave birth to the nation, nurtured the nation, brought them to the land, gave them everything, gave them a head start, and so on. But it's over. We don't see that anymore. We're not getting so much from him. And so you might be tempted to say, so what do I need God for if he's not giving to me? The relationship with God was a, a pretty straightforward deal. You provide for me, I'll worship you. You don't provide for me, I don't think there's any deal left. Right? And the Mishnah says, well, look, that is true. That's what Tehillim Memdalet says. That's what Ray Mayer says. Like, they're angry. You know? How can you not provide for us? The Mishnah tries to be, seems to be trying to claim that even when that relationship has been inalterably changed, so think of it as an older parent. Think of it as a parent who gave you everything, and so you will eternally be in their debt. And that is, that is true about parents. That's true about God. And so, yeah, right now, God is like an elderly mother who's essentially, synchronically, right now, a burden on you, but that's no excuse for not having the reciprocation from your side for the loyalty, the fealty, the worship. Now, if that's what the mission is saying, that is an absolutely astonishing way of dealing with the absence of God in the world. It's an admission. Rabbi Meir is right. But it's a sanguine admission. admission. In other words, Rabbi Meir is right descriptively, but we don't draw any normative theological conclusions from that. On the contrary, we keep the relationship surface level the same. Right? Remember what the mission is saying. Keep talking about God. When you meet someone, invoke God and greeting them. On a daily basis, talk about God. Not because we really think that God's lurking around the corner is going to help if you just ask him politely. On the contrary, even though we know he won't, it's important to keep talking about him. Because the relationship, having once been established from his direction, is now firm forevermore, but it's our responsibility to keep that going. Emotionally, you know, there's, a, there's a sense in which one can do that for a couple of decades with an aging parent that one may not be all that happy to do for a couple of thousand years uh, with a deity who's no longer helping. So I don't want to claim that this is simple, but like, oh, the mission said so, and therefore I now know what we ought to do with the, uh, with the problem of the disappearance of God in the world. I don't want to claim this is simple. What I do want to claim is that the rabbis were absolutely attuned to the problem of the disappearance of God. They saw this happening over the course of Tanakh, and they saw it happening in their own lives. And they turned to Tanakh to develop theological responses, but these are sophisticated responses. These are not, uh, well, let's, go, let's pretend that we still live in the days of Abraham. Let's pretend that God's going to show up or he's going to return any, any moment now. Uh, they understand that the world has been really irreparably changed. This, this is just, just not the same world as we had early on in Tanakh because they've watched it develop. They've watched this 
the end of Tanakh be, itself be very different from the beginning of Tanakh. And I, I assume that reading straight, fo- straight through, they understood that their world was simply picking up from the, from the world that Tanakh uh, bequeathed to them. The question then, of course, is what to do with that? If God has disappeared in an overt sense, even if he may be mediated sometimes, even if a black hole every so often shows up and says lovely things, you know, Elu Elu Divayelahim Chayim, or Halachak Rabbi Elazar, or, you know, he says, says nice things, we don't actually expect God to show up and smite the Romans uh, with, with stones from the sky. That world is simply gone. How do we deal with the world being gone? So there are different voices. Rabbi Meir has not gotten over this. Rabbi Meir is angry about this. He thinks that, that that's not okay. It is ethically, morally, religiously, theologically unacceptable for God to be Mastir Panam. And so he's, he castigates him. Many other voices in Chazal uh, are not prepared to say that out loud, but are prepared to grapple with the reality that they don't live in a world where God's going to appear anymore. Uh, but at least on the surface, they try to keep the, uh, the relationship going. Now, what does that mean, keep the relationship going? Does that mean they keep the relationship going because one day it will come back? That's, of course, a possibility. Maybe they expected it to return, maybe not today, maybe not around the corner, but there will be a day when God appears. Uh, but in the meantime, of course, I think Chazal very much lived in the present. And they were very realistic. They, despite their uh, profound piety in ways that may sometimes seem foreign to many of us, uh, they also very much live in the real world, a world dominated by the Romans, a world where, where they have to, to, uh, to deal with political realities, they're buffeted by economic and political uh, problems, and they try to, to, to uh, teach people how to live religiously in a world where there is no overt God. And the, the last Mishnah Brachot seems to be doing just that in a textually fascinating, I think theologically very challenging way. So I'll leave you, I'll leave you with that uh, question challenge. Obviously, hopefully, uh, it's the, the uh, title that I gave to the talk is it a question or an answer. Uh, my view is that there have been people who take it as an answer. I think all we can, all we can do looking at the whole thing is take it as a question. Uh, there are plenty of voices in the Jewish tradition. I don't want to say that we can choose from freely, but that we can grapple with, put on the table, uh, try to weigh and see what actually works best for the world that we live in, which despite the commonality that I think exists between our world and the world of Chazal, the world of the Tanaim, for example, is obviously also a very different world, and for no other reason than another 1,800 years, 1,900 years have elapsed, and that itself is significant, even if nothing had happened in between, just time had elapsed, I think that would already be different. Certainly, given all that's happened in between, uh, and you know, the last century doesn't need any comment, uh, I think the question of the disappearance of God is a, is a pressing one and a profound one. I don't think it means going de novo trying to figure this out. I think there are plenty of Jewish texts that have already grappled with this. And that's really the real point here, is that Tanakh has already described the phenomenon, offered a number of directions of how to think, it, and think about it, and Chazal have, have tried to articulate this in more detail, in enough detail that we can, I think, take this as the raw material for constructing a Jewish theology for today. I don't think there's one that will work for all Jews, but I think that Jews who are invested in the tradition, but also recognize that the world is constantly evolving, ought to be grappling with these texts, thinking about them as raw material for how to construct then a way of thinking about the world of today and tomorrow, uh, religiously and theologically. Thank you so much for your time.